Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Let's start with the bail reform announced this week in Canada and in British Columbia. The surge in repeat violent offenders being let out on the street, arrested over and over and over again in order to commit more violent crimes. The pressure on the federal and provincial government to do something about it finally getting some action here now got rob rothwell standing by to discuss first have a listen to bc solicitor general here mike farnworth unintended consequences stemming from changes the federal government made to the criminal code of canada and mental health and addiction challenges caused by the pandemic and the toxic drug crisis have fueled the rise in repeat violent offending crime right across the country Okay, so let's discuss how this is going to work now and whether it will make a difference. My guest is Rob Rothwell. Rob is a former superintendent with the Vancouver Police Department. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Rob, thanks a lot for coming on today. Good morning. Thank you, Mike. Okay, so let's. we've talked about this before. I mean, as a police officer, I mean, you were over 30 years as a police officer in Vancouver. Did you ever see situations like this where you would arrest like the same guy over and over and over again? Uh, there are many occasions where that event uh, takes place, and uh, not just me, but I think all officers would probably, uh, there would be consensus among us that, uh, yeah, too often you are rearresting the same individual, not often for the same type of offense, uh, whether it's a property crime or a crime of violence or robbery or anything of that nature. So, uh, you know, they talk about the revolving door, and uh, nobody sees it more closely than uh, police officers on the street. That's got to be frustrating. Was that frustrating for you as a police officer, especially if you've got a violent offender and then you arrest this person for a violent crime and then they're out on the street again? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's really difficult because you actually see the victims of the crimes and that's what brings it home to you more so than just uh, reading about it. Um, and so, you know, that these things, uh, you know, in, in at least in my mind as a police officer at the time, I would think this could have been prevented if the individual was held in custody. And, you know, there are a lot of factors around um, <clears throat> holding these people in custody and what needs to be done. Uh, and everybody plays a role, whether it is the investigating police officer, uh, Crown uh, prosecutor prosecution services uh, or the judiciary, but we all have a piece in that, and I think we all have to be very complete and organized about what we're putting forth uh, before the court, and sometimes there's a bit of a failure there as well, uh, and uh, I know that, um, for example, the Vancouver Police Department is very concerned about ensuring that um, any package that goes uh, to the prosecution services includes a very extensive background on the individual and all of the information around their reoffending and so forth so that a proper representation can be made to the courts to hold the individual in custody. Uh, still, it doesn't right. always work. So. Okay, so we still don't know precisely what is going to happen here. We do have a promise of some sort of major reform. So what we heard yesterday from the province is that 
the feds are going to make changes to the criminal code and what there's a lot of anticipation that they could bring in what's known as a reverse onus provision reverse onus bail and the way that would work is the burden would fall on the accused to prove they can be safely released into the public rather than what we have now the burden on the crown to prove that the person should stay in jail so now we switch that around. The burden is now on the accused person to prove that they can be released back into the public safely. That's called reverse onus. Do you think that will work, and can it stand up to a, almost an inevitable legal challenge? Um, well, I, I'm optimistic that it would be beneficial uh, you know, in uh, very specific uh, areas, such as individuals, that have used a weapon, that have a history of violence and uh, reoffending, and and you know, as, as you know, um, the best predictor of future behavior really is past behavior. And Mike, yeah. when it comes to looking at an individual and trying to determine whether or not it's safe to release them, let's have a look at how they performed when they were previously released, and did they adhere to the court uh, imposed um, conditions and things like that, or did they reoffend and violate uh, court uh, conditions? So. You know, that's pretty compelling in my mind. And uh, so if you're talking about a reverse onus, I think that uh, the reverse onus really would focus on the history of the individual and uh, and their level of reoffending or or not. And, uh, if you know, if they have adhered to previous release conditions and not reoffended, then uh, the reverse onus probably shouldn't apply. Um, but as you point out as well, I mean, uh, all the uh, the best um, legislation in the world when it comes to being interpreted by the Supreme Court of Canada could change quite yeah. drastically. So, yeah. so that is a variable that we don't know. Yeah. Speaking of Rob Rothwell, Rob is a retired superintendent, Vancouver Police Department. He's the author of the new book, 33 Years the Unfiltered Memoir of a Cop. One of the other things I was wondering about, Rob, is... If we keep more of these violent offenders behind bars rather than release them on jail, uh, on bail, do we have the jail capacity to hold more people? Because I heard that the jails are already pretty full. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. Um, so, you know, there, there are those capacity issues within the detention system that we need to address. Uh, to ensure that we're not turning people away or, you know, creating uh, unsafe conditions within the facilities themselves by double and triple bunking uh, prisoners. So um, that would have to be reviewed for sure. Um, and, you know, another area to review while we're at it uh, is applying a credit to pretrial in custody. And so as it stands right now, I believe it's a, a credit of 1.5 days uh, for every day spent in custody before a trial which is then applied to any in-custody sentence uh, upon conviction. So if a person spends 150 days, uh, or sorry, 100 days in custody before their trial, if they're convicted, automatically 150 days would be removed from the sentence. Uh, so, you know, that's something I think that needs to be reviewed as well, because it's almost a tactic to, uh, you know, if somebody has a slam dunk case against them, to um, excuse me, to want to um, be held in custody before trial in order to shorten any potential sentence that's imposed upon conviction. So, wow. uh, you know, that's maybe another area that we could look at while we're conducting examination. Yeah, I think that's a great point. What about the order for a judge, the ability for a judge to order a psychological assessment on on an offender? 
Do you think that yeah, can you know, be changed? So often you see, you know, obvious signs of mental illness, at least in my layman's view. Um, and uh, and I know that the police will often include a recommendation for um, uh, a psych remand, which would be a remand for 30 days uh, uh, to enable the individual to be properly uh, analyzed by a psych- psychiatrist to determine if there's what level of mental illness is in there. Um, now, I know that uh, the mental illness uh, is generally thought of uh, to, to determine whether or not the individual had the mental capacity to understand that what they were doing was wrong and committing a defense and so forth. But still, um, uh, so often I think, wow, I can't believe this person wasn't held for a psych exam based on, you know, what we, the police, had seen in terms of their behavior and uh, their comments and so forth. So um, perhaps maybe lowering the threshold uh, of uh, what's required in order to order that psych exam um, and a remand, I think would also, uh, you know, help in in establishing just what the drivers of the person's violence uh, is, whether, you know, it's, it's mental illness or drug addiction and so forth. So, and, and maybe right. we need to have other services involved to assist in that regard. All really great points. Rob, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. You bet. Okay, thanks, Mike. For months, we've joined our provincial and federal counterparts advocating for changes to a bail system that doesn't adequately address repeat violent offenders. I'm encouraged that during last week's visit to Ottawa, the federal government agreed to make amendments to the criminal code that would target repeat violent offenders. It's a BC Solicitor General Mike Farnworth there speaking yesterday saying he's encouraged that the bail rules in our country and our province will be tightened up to keep repeat violent offenders off the streets. Let's check in with Liberal MLA Eleanor Sturko now. Pleased to welcome Eleanor back to the show. Eleanor, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Okay, it's about time, right? I mean, how long have we been talking about this now, that this bail system hasn't been working? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Well, we have been discussing this since the very first day I think I ever became a candidate. So we've been definitely talking about it for almost a year now. And I know that um, really this has been an issue that the urban mayors have brought forward to David Eby and to Mike Farnworth um, in December, I believe, of 2021. So it's been well over a year since this issue was brought forward. Yeah, I mean, I was watching all these politicians yesterday doing high fives and backslapping about what a great job, and I thought, man, oh man, we've been talking about this for so long, and and now you guys are taking your bows about actually doing something, and we don't really even know precisely what it will be yet. But are you are you encouraged? Are you confident, as as the Solicitor General is apparently, that this is going to fix the problem? Well, I still have so many questions, Mike. Basically, they've hinted at legislative and non-legislative changes, but there's no details. I would be very curious to see what um, specific amendments did Mike Farnworth actually ask for, because the reality is, is that they have continually blamed the federal government and Bill C-75 for, um, you know, the spiraling and absolutely egregious violence that we've seen as a result of the NDP's revolving door justice system. Um, But then in November, after a year of saying that they could not provide any further direction to BC Prosecution Service, they did it. In fact, they amended um, Crown Council's policy manual with respect to bail on November 22nd of this last year, um, in 2022. So I'm not sure. You know, we saw that Justice Minister David Lametti was talking about Um, you know, Bill C-75 that came into effect in 2019 and that it really didn't alter the way that bail was 
um, conducted, there still is an onus on Crown Counsel, even in Bill C-75, to show cause why someone should be held in custody. It was really right. a result of, of poor directions by the NDP government to BC Prosecution Service that got us in the trouble we were in the first place. Okay, well, there's a lot of speculation that they will bring in what's known as reverse onus bill. So instead of the burden being on the crown, the burden would now shift to the accused. So the accused, the accused lawyer, would have to prove that they can be safely released back into the public in order to get bail. That would be called reverse onus. Is that is that what we're likely to see here, and do you think that will work? Reverse onus has actually already existed in certain circumstances within the Criminal Code of Canada, depending on what type of crime was committed. Um, so this wouldn't be something that's new. Um, what would be new for us in British Columbia is if the NDP government actually would acknowledge problems within the BC Prosecution Service and their directions and then have the political courage to act on that. Um, I really hope that they're finally taking this seriously, but... You know, I, I'm going to caution the public to, you know, get too excited. The reality is, is that the power has always been in British Columbia's hands. We have always had the ability to ensure that direction was given to our Crown prosecutors to have them under the circumstances of violent repeat offenders to request a bail and to request strict bail conditions. It's never a guarantee that a judge will uh, elect to go this way. But, you know, they, this has been in the public interest. Unfortunately, David Eby let this problem spiral to the point where we had, on average, four people a day being randomly attacked in uh, Vancouver. You know, Vancouver alone. So, I mean, how many more across the province? And even though they have um, set some new directions and policies in November of 2022 to BC Prosecution Service, we're continuing to see individuals released from custody, even though they're violent repeat offenders, and we've seen it time and again. In fact, we've been bringing examples up even in this spring session here in the BC legislature. So we need to ensure that they're going to be providing adequate directions and following through on any changes. Okay, okay. we are watching it closely here, to say the least. Thank you very much for your time today. I appreciate it. Yes, anytime, Mike. Have a great day. Okay, thank you. Same to you. Liberal MLA Eleanor Sturko. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. As U.S. President Joe Biden, in the aftermath of the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, has been taken over by federal authorities after it bites the dust. The Signature Bank also fails south of the border. Here in Canada, authorities securing assets at Silicon Valley Bank. They did have some business interests here in Canada. Let's discuss the aftermath of this now, and could it affect Canada? My guest is Carl. 
Carl Shamada. Carl is Chief Market Strategist at CorePay in Toronto. Very pleased to welcome him. Carl, thanks a lot for coming on today. Absolutely. Great to join you. Okay. Can you explain how this happened? Like, is it possible for you to put in sort of shorthand layman's terms here? What went wrong here? Do we know? Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know about shorthand. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, a, it's a couple of years uh, running here. This, this problem sort of uh, built up over a couple of years. But basically what the issue is, is that this was a bank that uh, was directly focused on, on servicing the tech industry in Silicon Valley. Um, it took in a lot of deposits from tech companies, uh, you know, ahead of the pandemic and particularly after the pandemic when, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars sort of flowed into the into the industry. Um, and that was sort of fine. Uh, at the same time, the bank was investing in long term treasuries, uh, things with fixed interest rates. Um, and, you know, that's that basically worked really well through 2021 in 2022. When the Fed started tightening uh, really aggressively, when it started raising rates really fast, uh, that blew up both sides of this. Uh, so on one side, the tech sector had less money to play with. Uh, so deposits started shrinking. And at the same time, the investment portfolio that the bank was invested in started to lose money. So all of this yeah. came to a head over the last couple of weeks. Uh, basically, you know, all the big tech companies started to get concerned about this. They all pulled their money out, $43 billion on uh, Thursday alone. And that drove the, 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 the bank essentially into bankruptcy and forced it wow. to, uh, to seek shelter. Yeah, boy, it's just like cl- that classic kind of bank run. And it really sends a shiver up the spine. Like when you think about you start getting deja vu to 2008 and the Lehman Brothers. And boy, you see banks going down and biting the dust it's uh, it's scary. What's happening on our side of the border here? Because this this Silicon Valley bank did have some interest here in Canada, right? It did, yeah. But uh, the big deal is that in in Canada, all it was doing was making loans. So uh, there were no deposits being taken from Canadians, uh, and so you know there's no risk of a bank run here. Unfortunately, uh, you know the tech sector in Canada was a really good partner uh, of Silicon Valley Bank. And, and unfortunately, this means that, you know, some of the lending that was happening, some of the, some of the access to capital that our, uh, our tech sector here in Canada had is now going to be a little bit smaller. So, you know, not a positive development, but certainly not as, uh, as scary as what was happening south of the border. Right. And when we take a look at in Canada, are, are you should people be concerned that we could see similar problems here? I mean, we, we tend to have this feeling that our banking system is a lot more stable and protected than the U.S. system. But we got the same problems here. Right? I mean, you got rising interest rates and falling bond vo- values and nervous customers. And don't we have similar conditions here in Canada? Not in the banking sector. So the banking sector, I would say, is is, uh, far more capitalized. And one of the biggest risks in this particular case was the fact that basically everybody depositing money at Silicon Valley Bank was sort of related to each other. They were part of the tech community, right? So when they all started talking to each other and they all pulled their money out at the same time, we had a risk. Now, in Canada, that's just not the case. Like, you know, every major institution has really widespread deposits. However, Rising interest rates are pretty terrible for the Canadian economy, given that our household sector is among the most indebted in the world. So I would say that, you know, this is sort of a sign of things to come, but it's not the banks that we should worry about. It's Canadian households. Okay, speaking to Carl Shamada, chief market strategist at CorePay, and we're talking about the failure of those American banks, the continuing aftermath 
of that. What will you be watching for, Carl, in the days ahead here as we continue to monitor the fallout of this? Yeah, so the big deal is whether the fear continues to spread, right? So um, we had a lot of fear in markets yesterday. People were very, very nervous that this might happen to other banks. Uh, we actually had, you know, more people lining up at ATMs in, in you know, uh, various U.S. states looking to pull their money out. Um, but wow. that seems to be easing today. Um, and so, you know, if, if we were to see this sort of prolonged period of time in which people are really scared, uh, that's going to feed through into economic activity. That'll mean that, you know, businesses and consumers change their behavior. And, and that's what we all worry about. I don't think that that's going to happen yet. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to happen as a result of this particular shock. But it's certainly something that we have to remain watchful for. Yeah, you mentioned that we've got very high levels of household consumer debt in Canada. This is a weird economy with the high interest rates. Inflation still a problem. And I remember a few months ago, economists warning that, hey, we could be headed to a recession here. It fe- kind of feels like we dodged that recession bullet a little bit. But do you think that's still possible? Could this event tilt the economy into a recession? <laughs> I think you nailed it right there when you said it's a weird economy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, the reality is, yeah, like all the data that you look at is telling you very different stories. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the rules that we used to follow just have to be thrown out the window, right? They don't make sense right now. Um, but I will say that, uh, you know, I don't think we've dodged a slowdown. I think we did have sort of a better than expected uh, autumn and, and winter period. But I do think that those higher rates, uh, you know, the, the, all the rate hikes that happened last year are going to begin really affecting Canada this year. So, you know, the fact of the matter is that uh, when you raise mortgage rates, uh, it, it does not immediately translate into a change in behavior. Right. It, it can take six to 12 months, even two years before, you know, that's that's really affecting the economy. So the concern that I think myself and, and many other observers have at this point is that, uh you know, that we might have sort of had that wily Coyote moment. <laughs> we, uh, we might have run off the cliff and not looked down yet. Um, and, you know, the big concern is when Canadian households realize that they are, you know, that, that they might be almost permanently uh, paying more for, for borrowing, uh, they might look down and they might, you know, dramatically adjust their behavior. All right. Do you think that when we take a look at the uh, Silicon Valley Bank and its activities here in Canada and authorities taking action on that, you mentioned that this is a bank that had been had lent money in our side of the border, largely in the tech sector. How does that affect the Canadian kind of innovation tech sector? Because it, you touched briefly on this before. Is it sort of slow, potentially slow down the tech sector in Canada? Yes, it does. And, and so, you know, this is unfortunate because it's sort of kicking them when they're down already. Um, mm. The reality is that, you know, and uh, you could probably find a way to, you know, say this more diplomatically, but the reality is that we did have a bit of a bubble um, in the tech sector, uh, particularly, you know, in the early months of the pandemic. Uh, you know, everyone in the world thought that the only way to run the economy from there forward was to, you know, do it via technology. Uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars flowed in globally um and a lot of that has now either gone or it's heading for the exits and so you know with silicon valley uh cutting its lending into the sector uh it's going to be just that much harder for those startups and and you know the really innovative uh new businesses to find capital uh and you know the the sad thing in in canada in general is that we've always had a hard time doing this 
Silicon Valley uh, runs rings around us when it comes to, you know, giving capital to a, a new business that's doing something that hasn't been tried before. Carl, thank you for coming on today with your analysis. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. There are important questions of how these banks got into the circumstance in the first place. We must get the full accounting of what happened and why those responsible can be held accountable. In my administration, no one is above the law. Okay, U.S. President Joe Biden there in the aftermath of the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank, these, the uh Another, the signature bank in the United States also bites the dust here. Let's discuss now with my guest, Michael Campbell, business analyst for Global News, host of the Money Talks podcast. Very pleased to welcome Michael to the show. Michael, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. Okay, Michael, you heard the president there say we're going to get to the bottom of what happened here. How do you think they'll be able to do that? Do they need to bring in bank examiners here? Well, one thing they're not going to do is look at government policy. And let's face it, we had the central banks manipulating interest rates to all-time lows. You know, we're talking post-pandemic or, you know, 2020, 2021. Anybody who bought a bond there, let's say a 10-year one, you know, bond, you get 1%, you put in 1000 bucks. You know what? Those bonds are only worth about $690 today. The problem is yeah. nobody wants some of those low interest rate bonds now you got to give them to me at a discount if you want me to buy it this is a systemic problem that yes it did certainly hit uh, silicon valley bank hard because when they came to have to liquidate because they had a lot of depositors leaving their money they had to increase their reserves presto they had no buyers and when they did have a buyer it was at a huge discount so the problem really starts with monetary policy yeah, and that's why I'm wondering if the contagion has the potential to to spread here, because this this is not the only bank that was in this situation here, right? I mean, could there be more banking problems in America? Yeah, there could. And I'll just remind people, we already had this problem in Great Britain with their pension fund, you know, late September, early October. Again, they had to come up with money because their losses in their pension portfolios were huge because anybody in Europe who bought a bond since 2014 was underwater as because the European Central Bank started to raise rates. Well, presto, they had to sell, no buyers, so the Bank of England stepped in. This is a problem I think we're going to see repeated, and it is stems again from the huge losses. If somebody didn't hedge their bond portfolio, you got huge losses in bonds, and it doesn't matter what financial you know, what country we're talking about and every financial institution, pension funds are watching this very closely, although I suspect they had the brains to hedge uh, their interest rate risk, which Silicon Valley basically didn't, uh, you know, but the losses are big. I'll just give you one more quick from Silicon Valley. Sure. Every tenth of a percent increase on average costs them $700 million in their bond wow. portfolio. Tenth wow. of a percent. So you get like 2% jump. Well, you're $14 billion to the loss. So this is what happened there. But we've also got Silvergate uh, Capital. That went under last week, too, and that was about crypto. You had Signature Bank go under last week. I mean, yeah. that was about crypto. And Silicon Valley and Signature, second and third largest bank failures in U.S. history. Wow. Speaking to Michael Campbell, Global News Business Analyst, talking about the Silicon Bank, Silicon Valley Bank failure. Let's listen to another clip here of U.S. President Joe Biden. Michael, and I get your thoughts. So pay attention to what he says here at the end about who will pay. This effectively looks like a, a bailout of this bank to me. But listen to what he says here at the end here. Here's U.S. President Joe Biden. 
All customers who had deposits in these banks can rest assured, I want to rest assured they'll be protected and they'll have access to their money as of today. That includes small businesses across the country that bank there and need to make payroll, pay their bills and stay open for business. No losses will be, and I want this is an important point. No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. How can I repeat that? No losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Michael, how can the president guarantee that taxpayers in the United States will not have to pay for this if if he's basically bailing out the customers of the bank? Okay, so first, let's say, remember, he's only they are bailing out anyone who had over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Everything under was insured. Right. So the, uh, federal depository insurance is going to be doing the bailing. So who pays is the key. Yeah. Every bank customer in America is going to end up paying. So he can call them taxpayers. I can call them bank customers. They're all going to pay. Why? Because the premiums for being part of the federal de- uh, depository insurance are all going up. So shareholders, because bank profits will go down, any bank customers, they're going to see fees go up. So that's who's going to pay. And it's a pretty uh, consistent subset with taxpayers. I mean, you know, it's only people who don't have the money in a financial institution in the States won't be forced to pay for this. Uh, okay. you know, so, yes, I can see why he's saying it for political reasons, but it is yeah. definitely a bailout. It is a bailout by all anyone who participates with a bank and it, any shareholder who owns a bank. And that could be huge pension funds, by the way. Profitability goes down. Right. You talked to, I think you did a good job sort of describing the kind of perfect storm we had here with the rising interest rates and these failing bond values and nervous customers want to get their money out of the bank. I'm just wondering, could this potentially convince like central bankers in the United States and also in Canada to maybe reduce interest rates? I mean, we've had nothing but interest rate hikes lately, but could they be thinking now about maybe going the other direction here after seeing this, maybe reduce rates? Well, fundamentally, it was really interesting this morning that about 56, you know, in the market, you look at the percentage of analysts, et cetera, 56% thought the Federal Reserve would raise rates a quarter next week, only a quarter. But by the time all of this dust settled today, like it's just a few hours later, over 80% thought they'd raise another quarter. But your point is well taken. I think the consensus now is, any thought that the Federal Reserve, and remember uh, Jerome Powell, their chairman, was saying last week that they're looking at much higher and faster than the market anticipated, I think virtually every analyst says that's off the table for a while now because yeah. they've got to see what impact this has on the overall economy. Canada was already paused. This won't do anything other than encourage them to stay paused uh, you know, yeah. at this point, and they'll see how it plays through. But, Mike, quickly, here's the other thing that's incredible. We got the inflation number for the U.S. today. Remember, they're raising rates in order to fight inflation. Right. Well, inflation's running annually still at 6%. The month-to-month, uh, you know, the, the sort of February compared to January was at about five point, you know, it was about a half percent higher in one month. That's way above what they wanted. So can they give up on the battle on inflation already? It's Ooh. not one. Yeah. And so they're caught between those two choices. And that's why I think it's, and at best, they may go a quarter, but they'll pause. They'll still look at the data because okay. inflation is still their number one bugaboo. But you're right. It'll okay. slow it down for the short term. Michael, it's great to have you on today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, Mike. Nice to chat.
All right, here we go now with our great electric vehicle debate. Now, we've talked about this recently on the show, especially the environmental and human impact of battery production for electric vehicles, specifically the mining of cobalt for use in EV batteries. Some of these cobalt mines in the Congo, in Africa, criticized for using child labor to dig this stuff out of the ground. Should taxpayers, therefore, continue to subsidize the purchase of EVs through rebates? We've got an awesome panel standing by to discuss this. But first, have a listen to this report now from CBS News. They're digging in trenches and laboring in lakes, hunting for treasure in a playground from hell. Hard enough for an adult man, unthinkable for a child. And yet tens of thousands of Congolese kids are involved in every stage of mining for cobalt. Women and children are doing so-called artisanal mining. But don't be fooled, this is no quaint cottage industry. At barely 10 years old, children lug heavy sacks of cobalt to be washed in rivers. From as early as four, they can pick it out of a pile and even those too young to work spend much of the day breathing in toxic fumes. Right, let's discuss now with our panel both sides of it for you. John Rustad, conservative MLA, pleased to welcome him back. John, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me on, Mike. You bet. Also on the line, Peter McCartney. Peter is a climate campaigner at the Wilderness Committee. Pleased to welcome him back too. Peter, thank you. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, gentlemen, thank you to both of you. John Rustad, let me go to you first. You say that taxpayers in British Columbia should not be subsidizing the sale of electric vehicles, correct? That's correct. When you look at the, at the suffering uh, in the Congo, uh, when you look at the environmental destruction in the Congo, uh, there's no way uh, as a province we should be subsidizing that. And I think, quite frankly, we should make a statement and we should be asking uh, other jurisdictions in Canada and really around the world to do the same and uh, try to bring about changes in terms of how cobalt is mined in the Congo. Okay, why, why do you feel that way? I just think that, you know, we have a moral obligation. I mean, it shouldn't be, we shouldn't turn a blind eye to the suffering of people in another country to try to improve our own environment. I just, I think that is just morally wrong. Um, I'm not saying we should stop uh, purchasing EVs, but I think as a province, we can make a statement. And by stopping the subsidies, uh, by making that statement and by asking other jurisdictions, it forces the conversation and hopefully can bring about change to these people who are suffering in the Congo. Okay, Peter McCartney, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, child labor in any industry, including, and it's very prevalent in mining for cobalt, is horrifying. And um, we should be doing everything we can to end that. I am not at all convinced that ending the subsidies for electric vehicles is the best way for us to go about that. Um, and I also think it's particularly relevant that uh, Mr. Rusthead has chosen this industry, considering um, there are serious doubts, and he's feel free to refute them on this show, that he doesn't understand the science of climate change and how the climate pollution from the burning of gasoline in our vehicles is driving the climate disasters that are uh, occurring all over the world. And so the ethics on this one, even the author of the book that Mr. Rustad is citing, 
um, agrees that electric vehicles are overall necessary and good for the planet, but we need to be tackling um, the absolutely horrible supply chains that they have, um, especially in the Congo. And a lot of these companies that are operating cobalt and copper mines in the Congo are Canadian companies. They are Mm. headquartered in Vancouver and Toronto, and if we want them to clean up their act and stop using child labor in their supply chains, we should force them to do that by law or shut them down. John Rustad, your thoughts? You know, it's interesting, uh, the comments about uh, uh, emissions from EVs. Uh, You know, when you look at the studies, uh, there's no question when you start using an EV and you just look at uh, how an EV uh, functions compared to a, a gasoline, there's significant reductions in terms of emissions. But the problem is you have to take the whole supply chain into consideration. And I don't mean even just the production. Uh, You also need to think about electricity. So, for example, British Columbia, 30% of the overall energy we consume in a province is transportation. Um, We only produce 16% of the energy we consume is electricity. And, of course, all of that is basically spoken for. So what you're talking about is having to triple the electricity production in this province to cover off um, uh, using electric vehicles. And the impact of that in terms of the investment, in terms of carbon, in terms of, you know, tripling the grid, all the rest of those, you know, the cost structure associated with it, uh, that has to be factored in when you start talking about what savings are associated you, with EVs. Hey, John, would you be willing to admit and acknowledge th- that despite the horrors that, that we see with regard to cobalt mining in the Congo, which I think we can all agree is horrific and terrible and something should be done about it, but at the end of the day, an electric vehicle is still overall has less impact on the environment overall than a gas powered vehicle, than an internal combustion engine vehicle. Like an EV is still better for the environment overall. Um, you know, when you look at recycling, when you look at the total total input costs, as well as the financial costs, the wait times, for recharging, et cetera, uh, I would question that. But what I would say is that there are better ways we could be looking at uh, reducing emissions and improving our environment. In particular, those are things like um, what we're doing with our with homes, uh, with the commercial side, with the energy uh, that's used in, in those um, in those sectors, uh, and more focused on actually reducing the um, amount of fossil fuels that go in those. I think that would be a far better okay. investment than electric vehicles, especially when you consider the moral obligation I think we have to uh, to clean up this problem okay. in the Congo. Peter McCartney, what do you say to that? I mean, is there any is there any doubt in the accepted kind of widely accepted scientific evidence that EVs are better for the environment than a gas-powered vehicle? No, there is no doubt. Mr. Rustad can question that all he wants, but he would be wrong. And it, the emissions from an electric vehicle uh, compared to a gas-powered engine are a tiny fraction, especially in a place like British Columbia, which has lots of renewable energy. But there's no doubt that electric vehicles do have an impact on the environment, you know, the mining for the materials, um, the space they take up in our cities. And so we should be prioritizing uh, transit, cycling and walking and walking as the best ways to get around in this province, make it easier to do those things than to drive. Um, and we can reduce the need for these critical minerals uh, for batteries by 90 percent just by making policy decisions that make it easier for people to take more sustainable forms of transportation. And John Rustad, you have also argued that EVs should lose their special status for use in uh, high occupancy vehicle lanes in in British Columbia. So right now in the HOV lane, you can have a single occupancy electric vehicle 
use that lane. So if it's a gas-powered vehicle, you'd have to have at least two people in the vehicle to use the HOV lane. But if you have an electric vehicle, you can have just one person in the vehicle. It's just another incentive to get people to go electric. You, you've made the argument that should be cancelled too, right? Tell me why. That's correct. And part of it is to do, obviously, with what's going on in the Congo and raising that issue. But also, uh, what you're talking about is providing a privilege to people that can afford an electric vehicle. Um, and that privilege is paid for by people that can't afford it. I just think that is just, just you know, wrong. As a society, we shouldn't be doing those sort of things. But, you know, when you, like I say, when you look at it, when you look at where we need to be, particularly when you look at the energy production we would need in the province, and just... I mean, think about this. With all of our transportation, uh, as, uh, uh, as Peter would, would uh, advocate, uh, that should be using electric, uh, you're talking about having to triple the, the grid in British Columbia. That's tripling all of the, the, uh, the dams and all of that production. And think about what that would mean, not just from a cost perspective, which would be enormous, but also the environmental uh, footprint okay. and, the, and the impact overall in terms of emissions to create that. Okay, Peter, do you have any thoughts on EVs using the HOV lane? Is that okay with you? Should that continue? I do, actually. I think, um, I have to be honest, I agree with that. I don't think uh, there's a, maybe there was a need when we were uh, really trying to get the first adopters to, to take on these vehicles. But yeah. I think HOV lanes have kind of been a failure in terms of um, improving traffic and of reducing emissions. And what we should be doing is making those 100% bus-only lanes. So oh. bus zips by from Chilliwack by a bunch of traffic where people are sitting and as soon as they see that they will realize boy it uh, makes a heck of a lot more sense to take public transit all right we're debating electric vehicle rebates and hov lane access with my guests john rustad peter mccartney lots of phone calls here hardy in chilliwack hi hardy go ahead hi thanks for taking my call and i'm calling from my tesla free right now uh i'm not a big fan of the the uh, carpool lanes in general, I find traffic-wise, they don't do what they're intended to do, and I agree with the last speaker on that. And as far as the rebates go, I'm sort of here and there with it. Uh, my, my, I bought a performance free, so it was too expensive for a rebate. But oh. to me, the big rebate is uh, the savings you get from the fuel. But what I really wanted to comment on was the situational ethics that people talk about this cobalt mining. Yeah. This is just this is just noise. Sure, we should do things to improve that, but nobody was crying about this stuff when you know you were using certain minerals for cell phones. It's sort of a anti EV lobby that is using situational ethics and talking about the the environmental production cost with yeah. an EV. Sure, it's more than a car. If you're going to park both of them forever. Do do the ice car, sure. But the thing is, once you start driving an EV, you get the savings back and the environment gets the savings back. There's, there's no debate on that. And people that bring that up, you know, I really have to question why they do so. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, John, for a good call. Okay, John, what do you say to him? He says you're using situational ethics here when you criticize cobalt in these EVs. What do you say to him? Well, I think the difference here is when people choose to use a phone or an iPad, uh, computer, etc., uh, those aren't subsidized by government. What we're talking about here is taxpayers' subsidies supporting the horrendous conditions uh, in the Congo. 
And that's where I draw the line. And that's where I think we need to be able to make a difference. Why do you draw the line there and not draw the line at climate change disasters that we've seen? Well, I mean, look, we can get into the debate around that, but it's still the same issue. We are using taxpayers' money to subsidize children in absolutely horrendous conditions that no mother would ever want to see their child in. And, you know, just because we don't see it, just because it's not our backyard, why is it okay to do that? Um, and why would it be okay to destroy their environment to try to improve ours? Morally, okay, well, I'm not, I'm, not sure anyone's, I'm not sure anyone's saying it's okay. Peter, what do you say to it? Yeah, I find that a really baffling place to draw the line, to be honest. Like, we're, we're okay with child labor, and I'm not saying this to rest that is, but, but only when it's not subsidized by taxpayers, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I would, I mean, I could, you could go to Mr. Ruthad's house or any of ours and find all of the different products that have child labor, that have prison labor. Um, it is extremely hard to be an ethical consumer, and that's why we need laws. Um, mm. We, again, these companies that are mining cobalt in the Congo are headquartered in Canada, and we aren't, should aren't most of them in China? Account. Aren't most of them there Chinese are, China companies? There are, there are Chinese companies operating in the Congo, but there are a handful of Canadian companies that have absolutely got child labor in their supply chains because of the cobalt and copper mining in mm. the Congo that they uh, they rely on. And the, the author of the book, Mr. Rustad, is citing, has said there's no clean supply chains from the Congo. And so companies operate, operating there need to be held to account. And then we do that via laws. Nobody, nobody in the Congo, none of these activists that are trying to get better conditions for um, people and, and ban child labor are yeah. asking the world not to embrace electric vehicles. They're saying that mm. this is causing harm where we are, and that needs to stop. Let's go to James on the line in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I got an easy solution for this. Take away the taxpayer subsidies, put on a 20% surcharge for infrastructure and environmental fees directly onto ICBC insurance, and let the EV peer, uh, drivers pay into their own fund and help support the community by paying into roads, which they don't do right now. Ooh. Okay, Peter McCartney, what do you say to that? Um. You know, I think we all pay into roads, especially folks that don't drive. Um, that's, mm. you know, the, the tax budget for the depart for the Ministry of Transportation comes out of general revenue. Um, and it is a huge problem that, um, you know, people using these roads, uh, people who aren't using these roads um, aren't getting uh, any anything back for that money. And so, um, I mean, I think electric vehicle users are already paying for the roads through their taxes, just like everyone else in this province. Um, but what we should be doing is maybe offering free transit. Um, I don't know why getting around via vehicle is free uh, on a public level versus, you know, taking public okay. transit, which costs money. Okay, well, let's get let's get John Rust out on that. John, we got 30 seconds left here. What about, like, Peter made the comment earlier, maybe the HOV lane should be for buses only. Your thoughts? we got 30 seconds. Look, I think moving around uh, people and improving transit is important, uh, but uh, Peter's wrong. Uh, there is heavy gas taxes on there to subsidize the road and road maintenance, uh, and those aren't paid for by, by uh, electric vehicles. So okay. I think, you know, overall, uh, and, you know, countries are starting to look at, jurisdictions are starting to look at road pricing, et cetera, as a way to capture it. Uh, Taxation is a great policy, but overall, 
you know, if we want to be most effective in terms of moving okay. around, you also have to understand people need to go to work and they need their vehicle to get back. Thank you, guys. They can't do it with transit. Thank you, gentlemen. John Rustad, Peter McCartney. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.